So last week, if you were here, I asked the question, if you all have jeopardized something, relationship, situation, work, this day, today, I asked you a question, isn't it wonderful to breathe a sigh of relief after you've already jeopardized something? You know, that, that sigh of relief that comes as that resolution has arrived, you know, bringing you comfort, bringing you deep satisfaction. Maybe you guys have taken a medical test, you know, in the recent history, and you just wait, and you wait day after day after day, waiting to get the result back. Maybe some of you guys are waiting to hear back from a school that you've been trying to get into. So something in your life happens, and resolution comes, and finally, you know, your days of waiting have been brought to an end, your months of waiting, and maybe even your years of wondering and worrying and anxiety, and then that news comes, and then it brings relief. We, saw, we see God bringing things to a resolution, fulfilling his promises to Abraham and Sarah, and we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 21. Go ahead and turn there now. Uh, you know, as we walk through the book of Genesis, particularly Abraham's life this summer, so we're looking at chapters 12 to 23, we see that really this is a, Abraham here is an example to us of what it looks like to walk by faith and not by sight, exactly what Tyler prayed about earlier. And as I said before, we get to learn a ton about this man Abraham, our father in the faith. But more importantly, and, and in a way that's, that changes the way in which we look at life, we get, to look, we get to learn and look about Abraham's God. Look at Abraham's God. Learn about Abraham's God, our God, as we look at this example. So today we begin really to, to move towards a conclusion of this portion of God's history of salvation. In other words, God's movement as he deals with his people and saves them. And uh, this portion of salvation history, at least from our perspective, is really bumpy. You know, it has its highs as Abraham, you know, goes and leads this night raid against the king to bring back Lot and all of his possessions. He rescues uh, other people. So there he's acting like the king, the man of God that God wants him to be. And then at other times, he's not doing so well. God had given Abraham a promise in Genesis chapter 12. And then he had cut a covenant with him just to show him how serious he is about fulfilling those promises. That's in chapter 15. And then between those chapters, really in between those chapters, and then afterwards you see Abraham and Sarah struggling in their faith. Struggling to believe and to trust in God and his character and his promises. But one thing is certain, even though they are unfaithful to, to a certain degree, God is nevertheless faithful. And it's because of his faithfulness that they breathe a sigh of relief. It's, it's because of God's faithfulness that we too can breathe a sigh of relief in this walk of faith. So as I mentioned, today's passage is found in Genesis chapter 21. And we wrap up the life of Abraham over the next few weeks here. And then after we look at Abraham, we're going to be going to the book of 1 Timothy and then at some point in time, we'll move back to the book of Abraham and then look at the life of Isaac and then his offspring there. So if you're taking notes and you want an outline, really the outline just follows along with the text. So point number one, Abraham and Sarah received their promised son. Point number one, Abraham and Sarah received their promised son. Point number two, it's through, their, through this son will come numerous offspring. Through this son will come numerous offspring, a lot of offspring. And then number three, Abraham will be a blessing to the nations. Abraham is a blessing to the nations. And that's really a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12. So go ahead and look there. At least I should say an immediate fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3. And let's just review once again what God promises Abraham. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
Now we know as we went on from Genesis, as you go to Genesis 15, Genesis chapter 17, that this blessing concerns the promise of people. So lots of people coming from Abraham. It concerns land that he's actually going to inherit uh, the promised land. And then number three, that someone from his line would be a blessing to all of the nations, to everyone that comes from him. And so we see here in Genesis chapter one, by God's grace, God is wrapping things up, at least most immediately uh, here in chapter 21. Let's look first. Abraham and Sarah received their son. This is in verses one to seven. Now, keep in mind here, Genesis chapter 21 is 25 years after Genesis 12. 25 years. Okay, so you can just imagine receiving a promise from when you, how old you were, 25 years ago. So for me, that would have been 13 years old, 12 years old. And then having to wait all, all those months and those days and those years to see fulfillment. Right, you can understand, we can identify with Abraham and Sarah. This is difficult sometimes. But here by God's grace, we have fulfillment. Imagine their relief. That sigh of relief. After jeopardizing the promise, at least from man's perspective, not once, but twice, you remember fumbling Sarah into the hands of the kings of the other nations? You know, they go down from the promised land. First they go to Egypt and they say, well, you know, they might kill us. So why don't you say that you are my sister? And it wasn't an all out right. It was sort of a half truth. Um, so they lie and then Pharaoh takes Sarah into his harem. And then the same thing happens with the king of Gerar. They again lie. And then the king of Gerar takes Sarah into, into his household. So here Abraham is fumbling Sarah into the hands of other nations. And then you guys also remember when Sarah came up with the ingenious plan, even though God had said that, look, you and your husband are going to have a child. They can't. So she says, hey, why don't you have a child with my maidservant, Hagar? And then from there, Ishmael is born. So you should remember all of their failures, their struggles. After all of that, you know, we can hear almost audibly the sigh of relief when finally Abraham and Sarah conceive. Go ahead and. Look there at verses 1 to 7. These verses are so beautiful. You just think of the poetry behind it and the resolution that it brings after having waited for 25 years back all the way in Genesis chapter 12. I'll go ahead and read those. Uh, and as I read, follow along in your copy of Scripture and note the emphasis in the verses. The emphasis, interestingly enough, is not on the experience that Abraham and Sarah have as they conceive and bear a child. That's not the immediate emphasis. It's on something else. It says there, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him. Isaac and Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him and Sarah said God has made laughter for me everyone who hears will laugh over me and she said who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children yet I have borne him a son in his old age the emphasis, particularly there in verse 1, is on God fulfilling His plans according to His revealed word. That's the emphasis there. Really, in verses 1 to 7, all of it. God fulfilling His plans according to His revealed word. Look there again in verse number 1. The Lord, so He's the subject of this sentence. The subject of resolution, the person who brings resolution to these people's failing faith is God Himself. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised so there you see the parallelism the Lord visited the Lord did and it's all according to his word there that's the manner in which he fulfills these things so the subject is the Lord who's doing the acting it is the Lord and what manner what's the manner in which he went about doing these things fulfilling his great promises it is as he had promised. 
So what brings relief here, let's be really clear, what brings relief is not finally Abraham and Sarah get it right. It's not finally they raise up their, uh, you know, the bootstraps of their faith and they exert enough energy and then finally they bring things to resolution. It's God himself bringing about resolution. Not only of his, of his great plans to, to move to save people, but even particularly of this individual couple here who struggles with barrenness. And they've been wrestling with that for the vast majority of their lives. And here there, Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is about 91. And that brings a beautiful sigh of relief to see the Lord moving in their midst. Even in verse 2, go ahead and look there, the emphasis continues to be the same. Now here, Abraham is the actor, he's the subject. But, but what's the manner in which he's doing these things? He's doing them according to the word of God too. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. It's according to God's plan. And then verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him. You can just hear, Moses was the author of Genesis, inspired by the Holy Spirit. You can just see here, God through Moses is making the point here. Sarah was the one to bear the promised son. It says Sarah conceived. And then, and then Sarah was the one who bore Isaac to him. And finally, in verse 3, Abraham calls him Isaac. But we've got to remember, right? Who's the one who gave Isaac the name Isaac? It actually is not Abraham and Sarah. God had told him previously in, uh, in, in 1919 that Isaac would be his name. So here, uh, go ahead and turn there, 1919. Oh, that's not 1919. Where is that? Sorry, 1719. It says, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. So even the name there, you know, it doesn't generate from Abraham's own mind. This is a God-given name. And so when we read that Abraham called we, are, we, we see here that Abraham is fulfilling God's word. The second thing he does is that he calls, oh, sorry, that he circumcises Isaac. But you've got to remember that back in verse, in chapter, in an earlier chapter, it is God who had given him the sign of the covenant. And that's also in chapter 17, verses 9 to 14. So basically... God, uh, what Abraham is doing here is he's calling and then as he's circumcising, he too is doing all of these things according to God's word. He gives Isaac his name because God had given it to him. And then he circumcises uh, his son because God had told him that that was the sign of the covenant. You can only imagine the delight, you know, the, the, the great delight that Abraham and Sarah must have had. Not only in doing these things, you know, today we might, um, uh, today we might, some people might choose to circumcise their children, uh, but, but, but bringing today's understanding of circumcision back then, it doesn't really work because now the circumcision, that, that circumcision, as I mentioned before, pointed to a spiritual circumcision, not done by hands, but done by the spirit of Jesus. That's, that's what the New Testament says. So today, if, if one chooses and we have the freedom to circumcise children, uh, you know, we might just go ahead and do it. But Abraham, he went about doing it not only for, let's say, you know, some doctors, they're, they're talking about hygiene and stuff like that. He's doing it because, as, because he's marking his child as an heir to the promise. He's saying, what we're going to do here is I delight in fulfilling God's word upon my son, not only calling him Isaac, but then circumcising him. I know that all future generations will recognize that he is a son of the promise, just like I am. You can imagine there the delight, you know, not only giving birth, but then going in and fulfilling God's words as he uh, takes care of this child. You know, Abraham not, names Isaac, uh, names Isaac, and the name is he laughs. So you just think about the delight, too, about his history. You know, so God tells Abraham to name his son he laughs. Why is that? It's because Sarah was Sarah laughed at God. She thought this was one big joke. Yeah, I'm so old, and so is this dude right next to me. 
They, they were so old, there's no way that we're going to have a baby in our old age. And God almost reproach or rebuking Abraham and Sarah says, you name your child, he laughs. So he will be a testimony forever of maybe the lack of faith that you, Sarah, and you, Abraham, possibly had. So there's delight over fulfilling, of fulfilling God's words in the circumcision. There's delight even in the name. And then Sarah laughs. Go back to verse, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 21. You see Sarah laughs in, in such a sweet way. You know, before it was a laugh of suspicion, a laugh of doubt. Now it's just a laugh of delight. Verse 6 of chapter 21. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. This is joy here. Everyone who hears about this baby that we just had will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So she too is amazed that herself, a 91-year-old, and her husband, a 100-year-old, could actually bear children. They're going to laugh. Who would have thought that this would have happened? So the name that was meant originally maybe as a rebuke seems now to be only a blessing, right? Though I laughed in doubt, everyone now will laugh in amazement and delight at seeing God bring about the promises that he had given me 25 years ago. They'll delight in the fact that God had done this. You know, delight has always been a part of the people of God's response when they see evidences of God's grace. When they see God fulfilling his word. They delight I imagine that Abraham and Sarah again would would not only have delighted over naming their son Isaac or receiving their son, naming their son and circumcising their son, but then even as they reflect on the evidences of God's grace given to them over the last 25 years. So what must they have thought of as they received this baby? Abraham probably thought, you know, God's grace is evident as God sovereignly went to Abraham and called him out of Ur. I mean, he was a pagan man in a pagan land. And yet God, for some reason, picks him out of everyone on earth and says, I am going to bless you. And then he draws him out. And says, I'm just going to give all these blessings to you. People, land, blessings, similar to Adam, right? God places him in the garden and says, you want fruits? Fruits beyond belief. Fruits that you can't even count. Beautiful things. And then I give you a wife. All of those things to enjoy. So Abraham, maybe he recalls back being drawn out of Ur as God sovereignly went to him. Hopefully God would be, uh, Abraham would be reflecting on God's sanctifying grace. It's God's grace that grows us in holiness. Right? In all of their mess-ups, as, they, as he fumbles Sarah into the arms of other men, as they lie, as Sarah comes up with his other plan so that he might have a child with her maidservant here, really God's grace is the one that was protecting them. I mean, who was the one who brought the plagues on Pharaoh after Pharaoh had already taken Sarah into his house? It says God himself. Who was the one who kept uh, Abimelech from, from uh, sexually advancing on Sarah in the chapter that we just looked at last week? It was God himself. God prevented them. So hopefully after these 25 years, you know, we will be able to look back and see, oh my goodness, we see really God's grace protecting, preserving, guiding and then now here we see God's grace given to them as they have a son, as they receive Isaac, the promised one. There's a lot to delight over. God is acting to fulfill his promises according to his revealed word. You know, I want us to be a church that delights in the grace of God. A church that delights when we see God moving according to his word. Delighting in all the evidences of God's grace to us as his people. A couple weeks ago I went to Louisville and um, I, I spent time with uh, one of my friends. He's a 60 year old church planter. And uh, I was telling him the story about how we moved back from the Middle East when we served there on staff. And we moved back because we wanted to be closer to uh, our, uh, our parents who were ailing in health. And then he wanted to hear my story about how I landed up here at First Baptist Church. And so I told him this, I told him the story and he just sort of he just sort of paused and burst out in laughter and he closed his eyes because he's a very emotive kind of man. And he goes, I bet you didn't expect that, did you? And I reflected and I said, you know what? I didn't expect that. And that was a, that was a little bit of a rebuke. I mean, have, was I thankful when I met First Baptist Church originally? Absolutely. 
But am I as thankful as I ought to have been that things actually worked out here and I got a chance to pastor a wonderful congregation and pastor with a wonderful man, Pastor Rick? And then now, by God's grace, you know, we're trying to reach out, preach the gospel to others. I didn't expect that. And I'm certainly not as thankful as I could be. And then I went on to talk to him about how I teach at Biola uh, and how, uh, you know, I get the opportunity to teach there. And I love talking about theology and how theology always has legs. So it, it, always, it always should be moving and helping us in daily practical life, our understanding of the doctrines of God. And he goes, and he stopped me, and I bet you didn't expect that either. I said, no, I didn't expect that either. Actually, I just went there to have this meeting with a man that I wanted to study with, to do another degree with. And in the course of talking to him, he said, oh, you know what? I actually can't supervise projects like that, but you want a job at Biola? And I said, at the time, I said, I don't think so. Um, but it's, it's turned out to be a wonderful opportunity. I get to do something that I love to do. Frankly, if you're like me, it's sometimes hard uh, to see how God is working amongst us. And then specifically in the details of our lives. But that's where we as brothers and sisters have a role to play. Part of our roles includes pointing out the evidences of God's grace in each other's lives. And I was sitting around and we were talking about, uh, me, Oscar, and uh, Michael were talking about this over this, this last week. It's, it's seeking to point out the evidences of grace in each other's lives. And we're basically saying, look, this is where I see God working in your life. So maybe you might be growing in patience. You could say, look, this is where I see patience growing in your life. This is spirit-wrought patience. Because we know patience is, is a fruit of the spirit. This is where I see God working in your life. You are more loving. You're caring. I feel so cared by, uh, cared for by the ways that you reach out to me. You have such godly concern about the ways in which you oversee your life. You're reading the Bible more. I mean, that's God changing your very desires. You could say, you know, I've noticed that you want to think more consistently about the ways in which you handle yourself in the business field, whatever field that you're in. I mean, that's God working at your life. You want to use your, you, I know that you want to use your words more wisely, and you have been. That's God working at your life. You know, we can go on and on and on. Um, do, you see, do you see what kind of effect that would have on people? It's not, wow, you know, this guy is a really nice guy. He has all these compliments. That, that's not what we're aiming for here. We're not, look, we're not aiming for ungodly flattery. We're aiming to show others that God is a great and gracious God and he is always at work, always at work in our lives, bringing about his plans. And it reminds them that the Lord, that the Spirit of God himself is in the mix, right? Making us more like Jesus. And because of that, we can delight. We can breathe a sigh of relief. Even when we fail, even when we sin, we can repent. But at the same time, delight over the fact that this is happening. You know, so I've talked to a number of you guys. And some of you guys have, talked, have mentioned how you're... Um, some of you married folks, how some of your wives have been asking you guys to read the Bible more and to pray more with them. And you guys realize that that could not only be a rebuke, but that could also be a fantastic evidence of grace that God is working in your beloved wife herself. God is changing this woman. Well, probably, maybe she didn't want to uh, read so much before, but now she is wanting to read and she's wanting to pray. And let's assume she did want to do that, but then now she's actually voicing it to you. Well, thank God that she's actually saying, hey, you know, we ought to do this as a family. This is a really good thing. I want you to pastor me and pray. So let's go ahead and do it together. Brothers, if that's happened to you, use that example. Go to your wife and say, that is God working in you. And I thank God because of that. And I thank you because of that. Now, of course, compared to Abraham and Sarah, the fulfillment of God's purposes is going to look different, right? So our children are not going to be in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. So it's not going to be rewritten to include, you know, Jeremiah, you know, as if, as if Abraham and Sarah were over Isaac. I mean, Isaac would one day be, be in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. That doesn't really, that's not going to happen to us. But there are promises that God has given us that we can lay hold of and trust that God will work to bring about. What are some of those? Romans 8, 29 says, it says, we are being transformed into the image of his son. 
Philippians 1, 6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So we have these evidences of grace and God is constantly working in our lives to bring these very things that he's promised to do to us. He's working in our lives to bring those very things about by the power of God, the spirit of God amongst us. So we too have the evidences of God's grace that he is sovereignly working to bring about his plan according to his word. So pray that we would be an encouraging church. You know, we we are a, a relatively small church, which means that we can actually cultivate culture probably faster than the larger church so i pray that we really would be uh, our church culture would be one of encouragement one where we're really pointing out that god is a gracious god and i see him working here let's be frank you know some of us frankly stink at encouraging and that's not a surprise as i mentioned before god says self-righteous proud overly critical ungracious people But thank God he's working in us, right? And so even though we might continue to struggle with these things, because we have the Spirit of God, we then can begin encouraging as, for example, Paul encourages. So, with all that excitement that Abraham and Sarah experienced, with all of the evidences of grace, it certainly brought about a lot of encouragement in Abraham's house. But not to all. The working of God in Abraham's household did not encourage all. Uh, To one or two, these cries of the infant and then the toddler would not be something to rejoice in, but something to be threatened by. And then ultimately something to mock. I mean, how do you go about mocking the fulfillment of the promises of God? But we see that uh, that's what happened. You know, if if Isaac is born, (laughs) the son of the promise, I mean, what does that make Ishmael, who at this point in time, when Isaac arrives, he's 13 years old. This is Abraham's son through Hagar. When Isaac is born to Ishmael, presumably he had known that it was through Isaac that Abraham's offspring would be numbered. I mean, presumably Ishmael knew. This brings us to point number two. Through Isaac will come numerous offspring. And this point is made in verses 8 to 12. Remember, God is wrapping things up, at least most immediately. And there's tension between the sons, tension between the seed And that points us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Look at the setting there in verse 8. So a few years pass, and Isaac's rite of passage into childhood, so from sort of babyhood into toddlerhood or childhood, it's already been traveled. At three years old, a baby would have been weaned from her mother's breast. Ishmael then is 16 years old, full-grown boy, teenager. Verse 9, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. Now, we might think that this is a laughing, like a good laughing, where where, uh, Sarah says, everyone's going to laugh over me. God has brought about laughing over me. That's not the laughing that she's thinking about here. This is a laughing of scorn, of mockery, like mother, like son, right? In chapter 16, verse 4, Hagar conceives and looks proudly on Sarah. Now, Ishmael, for some reason, is set against his own brother, Just as God had promised, actually. And Sarah responds there in verse 10. So she said to Abraham, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. I mean, you can imagine Abraham. This isn't easy for him. If we have born offspring and we genuinely love them, it's going to be hard whether or not they receive the promise or not. Ishmael is also his son. Whom Abraham and Sarah and Hagar have been raising. And God tells Abraham to listen to Sarah in verse 12, and then to go ahead and make the separation formal. It makes us ask the question, doesn't it, why Isaac and not Ishmael? It's a question that Abraham had already asked, actually, for us in 17 verse 8. God draws near to Abraham to reiterate his promise that Abraham and Sarah will have a son. And Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He's a perfectly good candidate to receive the promise. But then God says, no, the promise will go towards your son and his name will be Isaac. It makes us ask the question, why one and not the other? Why one and not the other? Is it because Ishmael is such a sinner and Isaac is not? The answer is no. I mean, we'll come to see that Isaac picks up his father and mother's tendency to lie 
And he basically does the same exact thing. Is it because Isaac will do so much more good than Ishmael? And God weighs the good and the bad and then determines his choice based on their works? No. The answer is biblically here. Always want to try and think biblically. I mean, according to this passage, look there in verse 12. It is because God had decided that through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And there what should come to mind is the promise here. Why one and not the others? Because God had determined that the promise went to the other. I mean, thank God that that the determination has nothing to do with the goodness or badness of the individual or the beauty of the individual or the lack thereof. I mean, thank God. I mean, who, how many of us would say, yes, I deserve to be chosen because I am so beautiful, because I am so good. According to God, is simply because that's the way his promise worked. It's because of his sovereign grace. And that's what Romans 9 says, according to Paul. Not all the children of Abraham uh, receive are sons of the promise. So it happened here with Ishmael and Isaac. And then we see later on that it happens with Jacob and Esau. Just because the, the physical descent comes from one man does not make them the sons of the promise. It's not like God is weighing the good and the bad, the, the beautiful and the not. We're simply told it is through Isaac shall your offspring be named. You know, Paul actually comments on this. He picks up there in verse in chapter 9 in Romans. This is what he says. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, so here he's going to comment for us. We have the Apostle Paul's commentary. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. In other words, not Ishmael, but Sarah will have a son and his name will be Isaac. So here the son of the promise stays Isaac stays, the son of the flesh goes. Paul talks about this too in Galatians. And it's obvious that God is bringing about his plans through Isaac, as through him will his offspring be named. You know, it's important to remember here that Ishmael's scorn is not merely scorn. It's not just sibling rivalry. If you guys can remember, maybe you had a number of siblings. Um, it's not just simply, I don't like this guy, and therefore I'm going to laugh at him in scorn. This scorn ultimately is scorn for God's chosen one. Keep that in mind here, okay? God is moving to fulfill his plans. Abraham will have a son. His son, That son's name will be Isaac. And so when Ishmael laughs at Isaac in mockery, it isn't just, I don't like you as a brother. It is, I reject God's chosen one. That's what's going on here. And let's remember, God had said, he who blesses you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. I mean, here we see again the two seeds, the seed of the woman and then the seed of the serpent, the righteous and then the unrighteous, those who follow God and those who don't follow God. And we see constantly that there is this battle between the two and we ultimately get to, this ultimately points us to Jesus. I mean, see how Ishmael mocks at the birth of a son. Does that not remind you of the, of the birth of another son? Ian Duguid, uh, who teaches at Westminster Theological Seminary, he, he wonderfully points out the fact that this points directly to Jesus and the mockery of that particular baby. Those who mock the child, the child of the promise, the fulfillment of, a, of the promises to Abraham, there are consequences. They are cut off. They are cast off. But those who recognize that that baby the fulfillment of God's purposes in the birth of the God-man. Those who recognize that person to be the son of the promise, the heir of the kingdom. God looks on favor at those people. It's fascinating, isn't it, here, that we already see the battle of the seeds. And we know where it's going, where Jesus Christ himself would defeat the seed of the serpent and crush him. And destroy him. And win salvation for everyone who repents and believes. Abraham's faith is tested here. Certainly tested in the next chapter. We're going to get there obviously next week. But here we already see similarities. God tests uh, Abraham's faith. As his son goes into the desert. 
he must let his first son go into the desert, and he must trust God's plan. Next week we see again, he is tested to let go of the son, but this time the son of the promise up on a hill. And he's forced to once again trust in God's plan. The good news is, for Ishmael, God had already revealed his plan to Abraham in 17 verse 20. But here God expands on his promise, at least for Ishmael. God draws near to Hagar. God draws near to the boy. Look at verses 13. And he says, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So the context is, look there, uh, look there in verse 14. Go ahead, go one, go, go ahead a uh, little bit past. Um, so Abraham rose early in the next morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child. And he sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So Abraham's faith is tested. God says, no, I will take care of Ishmael. And so Abraham, in faith, he obeys. And he sends Ishmael out and Hagar out. And all they have, it seems to be, is a skin of a water, probably weighing about 25 pounds. But nevertheless, he, in fact, obeys. We see here that God is not only taking care of his plans for Abraham and Isaac, but also his plans for other nations. Hagar and Ishmael, right? They go off into the desert, the story goes on to say. And that she was so, such in desperate need that eventually she lays Ishmael underneath a bush. And she says, Lord, help! do not let me look upon my son's death. So Ishmael is about to die as he's laying under this bush in the desert. And the Lord, though, has grace, fulfilling his promises towards this person and eventually this nation we've mentioned before that that ishmael and those of him 12 princes would come from his line they kind of stand as a parody to isaac and the nations that come from him 12 tribes come from abraham 12 princes come from ishmael both men are are leaders in their own right but the big difference is the spiritual promises go to abraham none go to the man the king who eventually would be king, Ishmael. So weakened and wearied, God draws near to Hagar and fulfills his promise there. She looks, God opens her eyes, it says. She sees a well there in verse 19. It says she opened her eyes, she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And then basically Ishmael's life in the future is wrapped up in 20 and 21. God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now that's interesting, isn't it? she's She's not drawing for him a wife from the tribe that would come from Abraham. She's going to Egypt. So here God is wrapping up this episode in his history of salvation, ensuring that Abraham's offspring would come about as numerous as the stars. You know, at times it can be hard once again to understand and to grasp why God chooses Isaac and not Ishmael. At times we we read these stories as passive observers. Passive observers looking down at these stories almost in an unconnected way. Like these are not part of us, like they have nothing to do with us. And then so we ask the question, why? Or if we back up and then we ask the question, well, why did God choose Abram in the first place? A man of pagan upbringing from the pagan land. Or we even go back further. We say, well, why did God choose Noah out of everybody else on the planet there to save? Why does God bring his grace to one and not the other? You know, what has been helpful for me in understanding God's sovereign choice or his, his sovereign grace. It's understanding man's sinfulness or my own sinfulness. Because that's what God's grace saves us from, right? It saves us from our sinfulness and the judgment that he brings against it. And, and, and it helps me understand God's grace by understanding my own sin. So, for example, if we, if we think that men and women are born good, right, we're, we're born good. Then when you come across God's sovereign choice... And say, 
Or when we come across God's sovereign choice in a story like this and then we read, we end up saying, hey, you know, he was just as good as the next guy. Or he really isn't that bad as, compo- as compared to the next guy. And then all of a sudden we question the God of the Bible and the Bible itself as people who think we are righteous, passive observers. So we look down on what God has done and say, what's up with this choice thing? They, they, they should each both receive it. They should both get it. But if we come to Scripture and embrace what Scripture says about man, that we have inherited a sin nature because of Adam and Eve, as Romans 5 says, and that no one is righteous, not even one, as Romans 3 says, and that we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 says, and that our sins deserve judgment, we begin to think a whole lot differently. We cannot read our Bibles at that moment as passive observers, but yet we come as active participants that this God, the God of the Bible, actually has something to say about me, and he is Lord over me. So then we begin reading this Bible in a very different light. Our questions go from, why does he save some and not all, to one of amazement. Why would God save any at all? If God's judgment, and if the reality of sin is true, if it is true that we all deserve death and judgment because of our rebellion against the great king, if that is true, then we are left asking a very different question. We're left staring at the grace of God and being amazed by it as opposed to looking down at the grace of God in judgment and wondering why he doesn't carry out his grace with a greater wisdom similar to my own. We say, I don't believe the grace of God who is so gracious that he would save any at all. Praise God that though we are heading headlong into sin, as the Bible says, even though we have rebelled, yet God pursues sinners. Romans 5 says that through one man came death and sin and judgment. That means we're all heading in one direction. But God is gracious and loving in that he pursues sinners and saves some. Is it by our own work? The gospel says, no, absolutely not. It is not by our own work. Let me ask you this. Was there anything that you did, anything that you can think of that merited God the Son to come down and take on flesh for you? Anything you've done in the past? To make God, to cause God to fulfill his promises in the incarnation to save sinners. Nothing. Otherwise it wouldn't be grace. If there's something you've done, then actually it becomes something you deserve. It becomes a wage and not grace, which is what Paul says in the book of Romans. Beautiful thing is that those sinners who turn from their sin and recognize that God the Son took on flesh to die on the cross for you where you should have he saves and forgives for anyone no matter how sinful they are no matter how messed up they might be no matter how difficult it is wrestling with those things that you know that you can't get rid of God says this he says come to me all you who are weary and I'll give you thirst for your soul Romans 5, 8 says this, God shows his love for us in this. He shows, he shows his love to you guys. He says, while we were yet sinners, not while you were pretty good, while you had climbed out of your hole just a little bit. No, it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that highlights beautifully the grace of God and his love in the gospel. And then as he rose from the dead after dying on the cross for sins, he showed to everyone that I really bear the punishment for sin for you if you would would repent and believe. So not only is God fulfilling his promises of a son, not only is he fulfilling the promise that many offspring will come through that son, he's also moving to make Abraham a blessing to the nations. That's point number three. Abraham is a blessing to the nations. This is in verses 22 to 34. In this part of the story, God works in such a way where Abraham, who had made made some serious blunders with other kings and kingdoms, now stands as a major political player, a political leader in his own right. And two ways Abraham is shown to be a blessing to the nation. Two things. 
First, the king of Abimelech makes a pact with the sojourner Abraham. Uh, so go ahead and look there at 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham. Now, we've, we've already seen Abimelech, by the way, right? We saw him in the last chapter. God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So you guys remember in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham and Sarah lied to the king of Gerar, that is Abimelech, which has devastating consequences. Abraham, as he wanders through Abimelech's land, he fears that the king will kill him and then take his wife, Sarah. And so they lie. They say, Sarah is my sister, as I mentioned before. So there, even though God had said that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations back in Genesis chapter 12, he seems only to be a disturbance. But here, things are totally different, totally different here. God is moving in all sorts of ways to make, to ensure that Abraham is a blessing to the nations. I mean, you guys, you guys just imagine Abimelech is a king, a king. And Abraham is merely a sojourner in Abimelech's land. And so the king draws near to the sojourner seeking a peace treaty. That, that right there just doesn't happen. The greater king, at least in stature, position draws near to the lowly sojourner. Abimelech wants to make sure Abraham will deal kindly with him. Now, naturally, there are some reservations, right? Because Abraham and Sarah, they, they lied. And so Abimelech is wanting him to make sure, look, are you going to deal kindly with me? But you've got to remember that here Abimelech is drawing near to the sojourner. And then what happens is he swears. And look at 25. Abraham says, when Abra it says, when Abraham reproved Abimelech. So who's doing the rebuking here? It's not the king, it's the sojourner. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about the well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, so they had seized, they had filled up a, a well. Um, Abimelech says, well, I did not know who has done, such this, done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So here he's kind of backing up, right? He's, like, he's saying, oh, I, I really didn't know, Abraham. So right there you see who the real, who really the powerful one is, who has the place of authority and who has the place of honor. It is not the king, but it is Abraham. And what happens there is Abraham then makes a covenant with Abimelech. That there too is backwards if Abimelech was truly the one over Abraham. So here it's obvious that Abraham is a blessing to this man, Abimelech. Now the reason why and the second reason why Abimelech is a blessing to the nations is, is shown to us in what he says there in verse 22. Abimelech says, God is with you in all that you do. What an, what an acknowledgement, huh? Despite Abraham and Sarah's mess ups as they seek to live out his life of faith in God, Abimelech is able to recognize God is with you in all that you do. It reminds us that God's going to bless those who bless you. So already we've seen how God uses Abraham despite his sins to be a blessing to the nations. Right? Last week, Abimelech prays for, sorry, Abraham prays for Abimelech and then Abimelech lives. But this here goes to a different level. Abimelech recognizes that God is with him. And so then Abimelech wants to draw near to Abraham. This is an immediate fulfillment here that in you shall all the nations be blessed. But this here too is a pointer to Jesus Christ. The nations draw near to the chosen one of God here in Genesis chapter 21. And then this would happen in its ultimate fulfillment in Isaiah chapter 60 as it prophesies about the birth of Jesus Christ. God, God prophesied there in Isaiah 60 about the future glory of the spiritual Israel saying, Arise, shine forth, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth. And thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. There Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies about the birth of Jesus. Because the spiritual Israel of God believes in Christ. The nations are drawn in. They're drawn towards 
the son of the promise. So if Abimelech is the immediate fulfillment of the promise, then we see that in Christ, as the nations are drawn to him, as we are drawn to Jesus, that is the ultimate fulfillment there. So by the end of the chapter, we're already left up, we're already left here. Three different ways in which God is wrapping things up, bringing the promises to a close, at least most immediately. We know that centuries would go by, and ultimately there the promises would be fulfilled in Christ and are being fulfilled currently. But most immediately they are fulfilled here. We have a promise of a son, and so we have Isaac. We have a promise of offspring, and so it is through Isaac that the offspring would be named And then we have a promise that Abraham's seed would be a blessing to the nations. And by God's grace, by the end of 21, you have the nations being drawn near to Abraham. But God is not done yet. The challenge for Abraham to live by faith and not by sight, it has not yet reached its climax. And we leave that for next week. You know, in all of this talk about God fulfilling his promises, we ought... To spend time on how God fulfills his promises in Jesus. The promise came first of all in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Where God said that the promised one from the woman's line would crush the seed of the serpent. That already for the first three chapters we see already the glimmer of hope that is fulfilled in Christ on the cross. Do you want to breathe that sigh of relief even though you know that you've sinned? Even though that you've messed up? We know here that God saves sinners, and because of that, sinners don't need to be sheepish in our confession, but we can be bold, knowing that Christ intercedes for us on our behalf when we confess our sin. The question is, is do you want relief from your weary traveling, from your struggle with sin? If so, repent of your sin and believe, and you will be forgiven. You will be forgiven, because there is... Under heaven, there is no name under which people can be saved apart from Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that relief can be found in you and in your actions and in your promises. Lord, we thank you that relief cannot be found in ourselves And some of us might know that very well here today, right now, facing the very things that we do, whether it is ill health, whether it is broken promises, whether it is staring at our own sin and the guilt that we experience from that, whether it's broken relationships and seeing family members move away from us, maybe because of something we've done, or maybe because of something they have done, and there is nothing we can do about it because of our sin. But Lord Jesus, we thank you that where we are incapable, Lord, you are capable. You are strong and you are powerful and you are faithful. Faithful to all of your promises, revealing that you are a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of love. Lord Jesus, we praise you today for faithfully fulfilling your Father's promise to save people who turn and believe. Give us a faith like Abraham, we pray. Even when things are difficult, we pray, Lord, that we would that you really, by your power by the power of the Spirit, would cause us to cling to your promises and your great power to fulfill them. In your name we pray. Amen.